You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe who helps people who feel far from God to know Jesus, cultivate freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. We're also a diverse tribe who welcomes everyone from bikers to bankers, PhDs to GEDs, every age, race, and walk of life. So whether you're a longtime Christ follower or a spiritual investigator, we hope you're encouraged through our content. Enjoy today's teaching. Well, the scriptures that we are going to unpack today, I wish when we planned out our teachings through this series several weeks ago that we would have given several weeks to this specific teaching in general. Because what we're going to do today is we're going to survey two sections of Luke's biography about Jesus. And what we know about the scriptures is that anytime one of the authors dedicates a lot of ink to a particular subject, then it was really important. Or they felt that what Jesus had communicated was something that we needed to know. And so The fact that we're going to survey two sections of Luke's account today is an indicator that, man, it's something we got to pay attention to. Now, that's the first reason. The second reason why I wish that we would have dedicated multiple weeks to today's teaching in particular is because it's personal to me. Here's what I mean. So, you know, I love the scriptures and I love how the New Testament authors reveal Jesus, right? Like he, to me, is the most remarkable person And I want everybody to know the Jesus that I have seen and the Jesus that has been revealed in the scriptures. And so I'm a very passionate person when I communicate. Now, I know, though, as a public communicator, that sometimes passion doesn't translate well. Like sometimes passion can can be seen and perceived as maybe being arrogant or being pompous. And sometimes when you communicate with passion, and you're speaking with a whole bunch of enthusiasm and energy, sometimes people can perceive that you're well put together or you're better put together than they are. And let me tell you something. None of those things are true. You know, I, let me be clear about something. These last couple of years in particular, they have been some of the most highly anxious years of my life to date. Actually, let me restate that. They have been the most anxious years of my life to date. And so let me give you guys a couple of examples of some of what like ruminates in my mind. Uh, My wife and I, we are currently at a place in our lives and in our careers where we're considering, man, is this a good time to grow the family? And where that becomes complicated is, I don't know if you guys have been watching the news, but, you know, Costco raised the prices of their food court. And that's very concerning because Costco never raises the prices of their food. And so that's indicative of the times that we're in, right? An economic crisis right now. And let me be real here, okay? What that does is it makes me feel for you, of course. You know, I feel for what some of you guys are going through who run your own business or, you know, you are on commission or something like that. And also I am concerned for me because traditionally in church history, church organization history, when the economy is in crisis, well, so too is church income. And my salary is paid largely by y'all's faith in God that he's going to continue to provide for you and your faith in us that we are in alignment with God's mission and his vision to reach people who are lost. And so when Costco raised their prices, I thought, oh boy, do I need to revamp my resume and, you know, potentially get some complimentary income and get another job somewhere? And well, why else that becomes a little complicated for me and why I begin to ruminate is... uh, you know, it makes me wonder, and my wife wonder, like, how are we going to make it? Like, are we going to be able to make it on one salary if we need to? Which I would be okay with being a, you know, trophy husband coming home. You know, she can come home. I'm in an apron or something like that. I would be okay with that, but can we make it? Like, will we be able to have the kind of lifestyle that we desire? And will we be happy in, in doing that? Or is financial pressure and stress, is that going to put tension on our marriage? And all these conversations that are going to end. And the other thing is, you know, some, some of what we're considering as we're thinking about growing the family is what's going on with society right now. And I want to be so honest with you guys, so transparent. My daughter is approaching preschool age, and I am utterly terrified to send her to school. And I'm wondering, and my wife is wondering, like, do we really want to bring another child into this world? Like, how much more anxious are we going to be? And you guys know exactly why we're terrified. Because some of you guys are terrified. We read 
a lot of what you guys have written down. A couple of weeks ago, we asked you to put down some of what you're presenting to God, what you're asking him for. And by and large, the majority of you on your prayers, you're afraid for your health. And you're afraid for your finances. And you're afraid for your children and your grandchildren and their safety at school. And you are afraid for the future of this country and how it's all fallen apart because there's so much political turmoil and there's so much social unrest and the economy is in a crisis and we're on the heels of the end of a pandemic. I mean, there is just so much that's going on right now. And so let me just say that I am with you. Okay. You're not alone in this journey of experiencing anxiety and fear and fret. I am 100% with you in this. And I want to be clear about something, especially, you know, for those of you who might not feel any sort of anxiousness, but you know somebody who's anxious. Man, all of you, like, I genuinely care. I genuinely care that you are equipped to be able to endure this anxiety because, you know, to be honest with you, and I kind of touched on this a couple of months back, I've been hospitalized twice now. And I know what it feels like when your body just does not feel right because there's something going on physiologically and things aren't aligning with, you know, your psychology or anything like that. And I don't want that for you. I genuinely care for you guys. And so that's where my heart is. I care for the people that you know who are anxious, who feel like something is not right. And so today, as we journey through the scriptures, the two sections in Luke's account about Jesus, my hope and my prayer is that you would listen with open ears and open hearts and open minds that you might be able to receive something to at least help somebody else who might be going through a season of anxiety. Yes, you guys down for something like that? All right, so let's pray. Go ahead. Let's clap. Yes. And then we'll pray and then we'll begin. So would you join me in praying? Father, as always, uh, we submit this time to you. As always, you are the center of our attention, and we just pray, uh, Lord, that you would help drown out any distractions that we might have come in here with, and that you would center us to hear whatever it is you want to teach us from your scriptures. Lord, speak to us. We are listening for you in Jesus' name. Amen. So how can we begin to combat anxiety. You know, what did Luke detail for us? What did Jesus communicate? How can we begin to cultivate peace so we have a sense of promise about our futures? Now, as we get into our study today, we're going to do what we typically do and set a little context. All right, we got to get a handle on a particular word that we're going to see throughout the scriptures today, and it's the, the word full. Now, don't put this in the comments and don't say it out loud, but who or what kind of character comes to mind when you hear the word fool? You're not supposed to say it out loud. <laughs> no. So for some of you, you're thinking, my ex, right? Others of you are thinking, my boss. And for some of you guys, you're thinking, man, that's a term of endearment, right? What's up, fool? That's my dog, right? My fool is my dog. Fool's gone wild, you know? And for some, some what, what might come to mind for you is maybe that well-intended, though never thinks through his ideas and implementation of them. And so he creates a bigger mess of a fictional office manager, Michael Scott. Maybe that's the kind of fool that comes to mind for you. Or maybe you're thinking of somebody who, like in a story, is a foil, right? They are clumsy. They're annoying. They're silly. They make a mess of everything, like Jar Jar Binks in Star Wars or something like that. And if you thought of any of those, any of those things, then you're not wrong. I mean, yes, those are absolutely ways that we use the term fool in our society today. However, throw that out the window. Not today. When you see or hear the word fool, that's not what we're talking about. You see, the way that Jesus used this term, the way that it's recorded in the scriptures, the word fool, it actually has a connotation and it's synonymous with somebody who is actually like a really incredible, skilled leader. And if you're a nerd who likes the Hobbit trilogies, for example, maybe who will come to mind for you is Thorin. Now, Thorin, he rallied all of his fellow dwarves and he embarked with them on this mission to discover a mountain that was filled with treasures. And so he's this celebrated, awesome leader. Everybody revered him and respected him. But when he was among all of those riches, he made this declaration, I will not depart from a single coin. And so in Jesus' use of the term fool, Thorin would represent that. 
Or those of you who love the number one all-time rated television show, Breaking Bad, who might come to mind is Walter White. Brilliant, intelligent, and he's very charming, charismatic, but his arrogance and his desire for dominance, well, it led to his downfall, right? And he ended up losing his family. He lost all his wealth. Ultimately, he lost his reputation as a nice person that you can respect. So today, the word fool, as Jesus used it, it is somebody who had great intellectual capacity and great capabilities. They had a tremendous potential to do good, but they became so self-absorbed and they became so short-sighted about this world that they started to lack empathy and they were only about their own interests. And so fool, as we're going to use it, is somebody who's only for themselves. Only for themselves is how Jesus used the term fool. And the word picture that's associated with it is like a withering plant whose leaves are falling off and decaying and it can't bear fruit. Because a fool, that is exactly what's happening in their souls. Their souls are decaying. They cannot experience any peace or produce it for anybody else around. So that is what we mean by fool today. Are we pretty clear about that? Yes? Okay. Now, why does understanding Jesus's term, the first century term uh, fool, why does it matter for us? And what does this have to do with us beginning to combat our anxieties and our fears and be able to produce peace so we're fruitful? Well, y'all might remember two weeks ago in part three of this series, we talked about how around 30 AD, Jesus began proclaiming to the Eastern Mediterranean world that God was beginning to unroll an unprecedented, never before considered plan for people to be able to experience his presence in his peace, Jesus was going to put into people the new, anybody remember? Christ in you. That's not discouraging at all, right? No, Jesus was going to put the new Christ in you. And so his closest followers, people who had once prostituted their bodies, people who had engaged in adultery, people who had once backstabbed and betrayed their countrymen for personal gain, these folks who had long been marginalized by their own cultural customs, well, they finally had a sense of purpose and promise that they could have peace with God, right? They were thinking to themselves, man, finally the tables have turned. And finally, we are going to be in positions of power. Do you guys remember that they rejoiced? They said, Jesus, even the demons submit to us in your name. They were elated that they were going to be fruitful. That is until they got a reality check. So have y'all ever felt an upsetting sense of uncertainty or utter fright when things didn't pan out as you had planned? For example, maybe a certain political candidate whose positions you do not agree with, that you oppose, they got elected into a position and you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is the first domino to fall and the downfall of our freedoms. Or a ruling that you don't agree with was decided and you began to fear for your rights. Or the job that you were once excited about, it turned out to be a total disaster. The organization was very toxic and so you start submitting all your resumes, but nobody's hiring you, so you feel stuck there. Or the business venture that you bet the entire farm on. It did not work out. Your dream died. And now the banks and your family members, they're coming, calling, and collecting. And so as your hopes were upended, you felt this utter fright and this unsettling sense of uncertainty about your futures. Well, Jesus is once excited about their potential positions and their power followers. They had similar feelings. Here's what I mean. So Jesus, he attended a dinner party among the aristocrats and the authorities of his day. We know them as the Pharisees and the Jewish lawmakers, Jewish law keepers. And when Jesus decidedly did not partake in one of their particular customs, they were appalled. (gasps) Who is this man? Jesus, knowing their thoughts and seeing their reactions, he let off for them a barrage of objective observations about their attitudes and about their conduct. And he expressed himself with 
utter grief, right? As if to say, man, y'all are absorbed, self-absorbed and short-sighted. You perform all of these practices, but the reality is you don't participate in God's purpose and his plan for humanity. Jesus heartbrokenly made his observations in this way. He said, inside you are full of greed and evil, right? You are for yourselves only. He called them what? Fools. And so, If y'all, let me just break really quickly. If you are what we call a spiritual investigator, if you're relatively new to the faith, if you are exploring who Jesus is, what Jesus is all about, man, just be clear that he is grieved. He is heartbroken whenever people are only about themselves. He is grieved and he is heartbroken when people are self-absorbed and when they are short-sighted and mistreat other people. People. And I bring this up because, man, there are going to be times where in your faith journey, you're going to see people like me who supposedly represent Jesus, but because we're so imperfect, we're going to get it so wrong and we're going to have an inward focus at times and you're going to get turned off. And let me just say, don't follow a person like me. Don't follow a preacher. Stay focused on Jesus. Right? Stay. He is beautiful. He is remarkable. Stay focused on Jesus. Yes. Now, parents, or maybe even older siblings, if you've ever felt disrespected in your own home, or teachers, if you've ever felt disrespected by your students in your own classroom, well, then you know how those authorities would have felt towards Jesus concerning his remarks. Or those of you who've ever confronted somebody who is self-absorbed, maybe you challenged a narcissist at work or something like that, then you probably know exactly how these authorities responded with retaliation, vengeance, and vendiction. They had a vendetta. And so from that moment forward, in Jesus's ministry, in the life of his disciples, those authorities, those aristocrats, they were out to make life incredibly difficult for Jesus and his followers. Luke detailed it this way. When he, Jesus, left there, that party he was at, the scribes and the Pharisees, they began to oppose him fiercely. And they were lying in wait for him. Now let's pause there. Because here we are in 2022. 2,000 years after this event. And us having a general idea of how Jesus' story panned out. Well, we might miss the utter fright. And we might miss the unsettling uncertainty that Jesus' followers felt based on his barrage of observations toward those authorities. You see, much like people in our time today, in our world today, like uh, Eric Snowden, for example, I believe is his name, or Julian Assange, those folks who had seemingly betrayed their countries and betrayed their leaders, and they had to flee for asylum lest they get assassinated or put in prison for the rest of their lives. Well, some of Jesus's followers, they would have felt that a target was on their back and that they were dead men walking. They knew it was only a matter of time before they would be arrested and summoned before their Jewish courts. And they knew that based on how their laws were interpreted at that point in time, that at best, at best, they would be excommunicated from the center of activity known as the synagogues. And no one, not even their family members, would be able to associate with them lest they too also be banished and excommunicated, which meant from that point forward in their lives, Earning a livable, a livable wage was going to be incredibly difficult for Jesus' followers. And not just that, they would no longer be able to participate in their cultural customs and not enjoy community or connection with their families. And unfortunately for them, the positions of power that they hoped that they were going to be in, well, they knew what awaited them was a life of poverty as refugees. And unfortunately, Jesus also affirmed that such was the future for them in their cards. And so recall that upsetting feeling that you felt when things don't pan out the way that you desire. Imagine the punch in the gut Jesus' followers would have felt as he foretold them their future. He said to them, not if, when. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, man, what do you guys think went through their minds? You know, much 
like how we think in times of economic crisis and political turmoil or when we're out of a job or we're in a job that we hate and nobody's hiring, much like when we are under a boss who uses fear tactics, Jesus' followers, they would have fretted. Probably asking similar questions to me and my wife, like, how will we survive? Are we doomed to a life of misery, they would have thought, and will our lives ever count for anything? So understandably, they could not see past. They could not see past their present circumstances, their present problems. And consequently, what happened to them, and it also happens with us, is that they turned their attention inward. Right? And so this is why it's important that we understand Jesus' use of the term fool. Because when we're filled with fret, and when we're filled with fright, our natural human tendency is to turn our attention and to turn our focus inward. And though it might not be our intention, we can become self-absorbed because we're trying to self-protect. And we become short-sighted about potential opportunities and possibilities in our future. And they, would, they were in danger of becoming the very fools that Jesus had just grieved over. And so understanding this, knowing how they felt, knowing how they thought, Jesus encouraged his, feared, his fearful about the future followers. Y'all, I love this, what Jesus next says. It shows the kind of God that he is. And y'all, he is not the kind of God that dismisses any of our sentiments or our feelings, but he's the kind of God who validates our feelings as very real. You see, Jesus, with great empathy, he reminded his disciples of his relationship with them, of their relationship to him. As if to say to them, man, mi familia, my brothers, my sisters, he said, I say to you, my what? Friends. Jesus reminded his followers, fearful about their future, that to him they were friends. Familia. Jesus calls us friend. And then he continued as if to say, man, those people in positions with power over you, their power is only temporal and their power is actually only perceived. You see, they don't possess a true or eternal power over your joy or over your peace or over the destiny of your soul. He said, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. And Jesus didn't stop there. And before I tell you what he said, we need to slow down right here. We need to make sure that we don't misinterpret what Jesus next said. Because what Jesus next said, it can and it has been misinterpreted in church gatherings and in teachings. And it is often used to kind of have a hellfire and brimstone little feel to it so that people are coerced into changing their life, right? You need to get your life together kind of preaching style. But what's fascinating is that when we look at the context and we look at the grammar of how Jesus continued in his conversation, which remember, Jesus just called his followers, what? Friends. And he was empathetic. When we look at the context and the grammar, man, we see that Jesus, he was continuing in an affirming and in an encouraging and an empathetic way. And so in reference to his eventual resurrection and the pouring out of his spirit, Jesus made this promise to his followers. He said, look, I will very soon, I will soon prove to you, give you the proof that you need to know that I have all power and all authority over all things, including, yes, even death, even over people's eternal destinies. He said, I will show you. You're going to see. I will show you the one to fear. Remember, friends, empathetically, not finger wagging. And then his, now this is interesting right here. Okay, we're going to do a little Bible study here. A little short-term seminary session. All right, so with a very unique grammatical choice, the author of this biography, Luke, he wrote a word that has huge implications for you and for me. Those of you who like Bible study, man, you get to nerd out right here. So Luke, he recorded a word in the original language that, that was Greek that we translate into the English fear. And he used a, a grammatical form of that word that is known as the aorist imperative. The aorist imperative. 
And in this grammatical form, the aorist imperative, it indicates that something happened in the past that impacts your present. And the aorist imperative, sometimes it's also known as the punctiliar action. It needs to only, require, only occur one time, right? at a single point in time. So let me give you an example. Like when I proposed to my wife, Chris, my now wife, Christine, and she said yes, that was like an aorist imperative, a punctiliar action that occurred. Because I didn't have to keep asking, will you marry me? Will you marry me? Will you marry me? And she didn't have to keep saying, yes, 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 yes. No, it happened. I said, will you marry me? Happened. And then she said, yes, it happened. And so here's why this matters, okay? So that word that Luke recorded in the aorist imperative, that word fear, what he's trying to communicate to us is like, hey, look, this is what Jesus was essentially saying. When you, at a single point in time, at any point in your life, put your faith in me, put your trust in me, that I have all power, that I have all authority over even death. When you believe that I am the one true God, a single point in time, well, guess what? You no longer have anything to fear. Right? He said it this way. Luke recorded it this way in the aorist imperative, that punctiliar action. He said, this one-time decision, fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death in reference to himself. Again, not finger wagging, fear him, nothing like that. No, no, no. Friends, remember? Empathetic. These guys were afraid. He said, hey, fear him, me. I'm about to prove to you I've got all power and authority. And then Jesus repeated himself. He said, yes, I say to you, this is the one to one point in time decision, fear. Put your trust in me. And then he did this very poetic thing using the same language, but this time now it is a, an imperative that we have to repeat every single moment of every single day. He said, don't be afraid. So poetic, so beautiful. Put your faith in Jesus and don't be afraid. Make sense? Following me? Now, let me ask you guys. Anyone online, anyone in the theater, by show of hands, this time you can actually respond out loud. Have you ever accepted and affirmed that Jesus is God? Or let me ask it this way, all right? Has anyone ever made a punctiliar action, right? A single point in time decision to trust that Jesus has all power and all authority. He's the one true God such that you believe his story. Yes, go ahead and raise your hand. You believe his story. He came to earth. He died, buried three days later, was raised from the dead. Let me tell you guys something who raised your hands, who put an emoji in the comments, when you made that decision, according to God himself, you have nothing left to fear. You see, if Jesus was in fact raised from the dead, if he in fact has power to overcome lifelessness after hanging on a cross and being put in a tomb for three days, then with him, nothing is impossible. And for you, he can make all things new. No matter your circumstances, no matter your situation, no matter how dire everything is, fear Jesus and don't be afraid. Come on, somebody. And so some of y'all might be thinking, man, that sounds great. People are clapping. I get it. It's encouraging. But practically, <laughs> practically speaking, Lee, like how does accepting and affirming that Jesus, how does putting my trust in him that he is God, how does it actually help me? Like, why should I do that and not feel the need to fret or be afraid? Well, remember, we talk about this often here at City Tribe, and we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Jesus taught that when you agree to receive him as the one true God, then you will receive from him, right, this way of experiencing his presence and his peace, the new Christ in you. He puts his spirit in you, right? Or the way that we looked at it a couple of weeks ago that Jesus and Luke stated it is that he clothes you in his new garment. And so this is why Jesus promised his fearful disciples in this whole conversation, this dialogue. He says, how much more will God, what, clothe you? And so practically what this means for you and for me, if you're wondering, how does this apply to my life practically? See, that means when we are clothed in Jesus' spirit, because that punctiliar action, we put our faith in him, it means we have an ongoing, irreversible access to the spirit of the living God who calls us friend. 
And because he's God with us and because he's God in us and because he's God for us, what that means is we can enjoy his peace from his presence anywhere we go at any time, no matter the situation. So like Jesus said, don't be afraid. And practically being clothed in Jesus' spirit, what that means for us is that we have the promise of eternity in paradise in his presence. That this world then is merely the beginning. And so your problems are not permanent. And your problems will not permeate. And they will not be pervasive and go with you into eternity. So like Jesus said, don't be afraid. And it means that you are endowed and you are empowered with a very unique gifting, a contribution you can make in the world. So no matter who has any sort of power over you, no matter the oppressive or toxic cultures that you are in or the environment or the country is going into shambles, you still have a significant purpose no matter what anybody says. Like Jesus said, don't be afraid. And it means on top of all of that, man, he, when he clothes you in his spirit, he brings you into a new spiritual family which theoretically is rooted in love. And that means that you should have help for your well-being. It means that you are given access to other connections and to other people's resources. And technically, you should be cared for. Like Jesus said, don't be afraid. And it means that we have a constant access to his creativity, to his wisdom, to his knowledge, the same creativity and wisdom that formed the foundations of this earth. And so when you have no idea what to do, he will guide you. Heck, even Jesus told his followers, he said, look, the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. You have what you need. Don't be afraid. Do you see the practicality of this? Yes, So let's recap really quickly what we've talked about today. All right, to Jesus, a, a person who is only for themselves, somebody who is, you know, just uh, self-absorbed or short-sighted is what he would call a fool. And Jesus is grieved when anyone conducts themselves like a fool because that's not his intent for us. And so Jesus' followers, they became utterly frightened and afraid about their Futures And naturally, as every human being does, they had this tendency to turn their focus inward. And so they were susceptible to becoming the very fools that Jesus was grieved about. And so to keep them and to keep us from becoming fools so we can enjoy the life that he intends for us, a life of fruitfulness, Jesus reminded them, hey, I've got all power. I've got all, all authority in heaven and on earth. So don't be afraid. Now, how do we take all that we've discussed today from here to here. How do we move what we know to what we now believe in our hearts and live from it? Like, how do we begin to combat our very real legitimate feelings? I mean, when our body feels funky, something's not right, it is easy to turn inward. And so how do we fight that so we don't live like Fools. Well, Jesus, he gave us the way to begin to combat that. And it's the antidote for anybody who is an only for himself kind of fool. And what Jesus taught, it reminds me of an exchange that I had with a family friend and who worked as a physicist, now a professor at Florida State University, the Seminoles. And so this physicist, little background, he spent several years at the postgraduate level studying the physical world and studying particles, some atomic, uh, subatomic particles, their relationships with atoms and protons and uh, neutrons and their role in create uh, electricity and their role in magnetism and his work. It required that he know and apply high-level mathematics, engineering, even chemistry. And a lot of his colleagues, well, they specialized in astrophysics and they specialized in nuclear physics. And I mean, this guy, he is the most one, one of the most brilliant minds that I personally know, and I go to him for life advice often. Well, about 13 years ago, I was visiting his family here in San Antonio. My physicist friend and I, we were hanging out in his parents' backyard at their pool. And for whatever reason, he swam away, maybe to go get like a swimming pool basketball or to go grab a beer or something like that. And on his back, as he swam away, I saw a very peculiar remark that made me go, huh, that's interesting. You know, he had this Tattoo, dead center, pretty large, of a cross. 
And y'all know that like stereotype that brilliant scientists aren't supposed to believe in God, like they're supposed to be atheists. I kind of projected that onto him. And I thought to myself, I was like, man, that's odd. Why would a brilliant physicist have a cross on his back? That's a permanent thing, you know? And so surely he had to have gotten that when he was drunk or something, right? And so when my friend returned, I was like, hey, yo, fool. All back. Okay. I was like, hey, friend, uh, what's up with that cross on your back? And y'all, I have never forgotten this conversation. I think about it all the time. He said, man, I wanted to get a tattoo I'd never regret. And I figured that what I would never regret is something that's unchanging, like my family or my faith. I was like, well, hold up, hold up, hold up. Faith? What do you mean faith? Okay, you are a physicist. You're not supposed to believe in God. And my friend chuckled and he said, bro, all of my colleagues do. When you study what we've studied, when you've seen under the microscope the systems and the complex intricacies that we have seen, when you begin to understand just how intricately and beautifully and amazingly designed our creation is, man, you will not deny intelligent design. You will not deny God exists. Now, here's my point with this story. Here's my point about how Jesus said we're supposed to combat our fears. You see, my friend, whose name coincidentally is Luke, by way of his education and by way of his then vocation, he was forced to carve out countless hours to exploring inside and out, upside and downside, a lot about creation. And he was able to draw a conclusion. And he considered, man, given all of these details, the care that is involved in all of this design, like, oh my gosh, we have a very capable creator. And because he came to the conclusion that God is capable and that God cares, man, this impacted his faith. And this is exactly what Jesus is commanding his disciples to do, commanding you and me to do if we want to begin combating our fears and all our anxieties and protect against becoming fools. Jesus commanded it this way. Okay, so like my friend Luke, who upside down, inside out, he spent countless hours carving out time to give thought and draw a conclusion about creation. Jesus said, consider. Y'all say that word, consider. Consider. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn. Yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? And then again, Jesus repeated himself. And what do we say when Jesus repeats himself? Better pay attention, right? Again, in the way that my friend Luke did, spent countless hours. He carved out time to give thought to creation and God's capabilities and his care. Jesus said that word again. What? Consider. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. And if that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today, thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you? How much more will he clothe you? So let's be honest here. All right, we've been transparent today, right? How often, no judgment, just curious, how often do you carve out time to consider our Heavenly Father, our Creator's capability to take care of you and His care that He has for you? I mean, let's be real. Is it possible? Is it possible that the reason that we are so plagued today with fret and filled with fright, or the reason that I was and the reason that I've like, gone to the hospital twice is because I am spending more time considering all of these variables that are out of my control. I'm spending time considering what might happen in the future instead of spending time considering the one who is in total control, the one who has all power and authority, the one who cares about us. Is that possible? Man, before this season, I don't think I spent as much time considering as I do now. That is one benefit of this Time. And so as we move forward in our journey to begin to produce peace and to combat anxiety, this is what I'm calling us to do. And so let me be clear. What I am calling us to do, I am challenging us to be a people who will avoid living like fools by keeping Jesus's command to do what my friend Luke did and consider. Carve out time to consider our Creator's care 
for us and his capability. Carve out time in your day. Man, maybe the very first thing in the morning, maybe as you're getting ready, maybe as you're in the shower, on your drive, your commute to work, maybe when you're in a restroom stall on your lunch break or something to that effect, maybe right before bed, you've got to carve out time to consider our creator's care and his capabilities. It is the way that we begin to combat the fear as we recognize exactly who is our friend. And so here's what that looks like for me. You guys have heard me talk about this before. Man, one of the ways I love closely considering our creator is I like to drive about 75 minutes to Fredericksburg and I go to Enchanted Rock and I climb that 400-foot dome and when I'm on the top, I just stand up there and sit up there and I look at the birds that are flying in the air and I look at the vastness of his creation, the Texas Hill Country, and I'm just marveling and amazed at these rock formations. Like, dude, I consider he is capable. If he can do this, our lead pastor, Doug Robbins, one of the ways that he considers our creator's care for us. He has a whole bunch of aquariums and fish in his house. He calls his office the off fish because there are so many fish and he just looks at them and they're so beautiful and they're so uniquely designed. Pastor Joe, the way that he considers our creator's love, he gets out to Rockport and he listens to the ocean and he listens to the breeze and he allows it to remind him of God's capabilities. My friend Rebecca, she goes out to local conservatories and she goes and listens to the birds and watches the birds. And for you, man, you can consider God's love by walking around the botanical gardens or Phil Hardberger Park on I-10. Or You guys, you can go to the local planetarium and be in amazement at the vastness of our galaxy. And you can buy a microscope and examine microscopic systems and see that there is a lot more happening that we don't get to see in our naked eyes, right? Or watch the sunrise from your porch. Because even when you're depressed, the one thing you can count on every single day, and it really represents God is in control, is that the sun is going to rise again. You can have hope. You can consider that our creator, he loves you. He cares for you. He is capable. He will provide for you. And so right now, here's what we're going to do. I had so much more that I wanted to say, but I had to cut it because I felt like the Lord was saying, look, I got the rest. I can do it from here. And so we're going to carve out some intentional time for you and for me, and we are just going to consider. We're going to consider God's amazing love and his capabilities. And so those of you listening only to the podcast, only to the audio, listen intently because I'm going to describe some scenarios. And so right behind me, there is projected on the screen an image of ravens in Israel. Ravens that perhaps Jesus and his followers would have been looking at. And as you look at this image, I want you to consider the raven. It's liberated. It's free. It's not burdened. It's not thinking about politics. It's not thinking about the economy. It's not thinking about its job and having to perform perfectly. And Jesus said, consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, and yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Anybody receive that? Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Let me tell you, this is what Jesus was saying. You are worth much more than the birds. And next behind me, there is another picture, and it's of wildflowers in a field in Israel, similar to what Jesus and his disciples, they would have seen. And as you look at this image, I want you to consider just how these wildflowers, they never worry about the rain. They never worry about how they're going to pollinate or germinate or if they're going to be resurrected next season. They never worry about how beautifully adorned they make the fields. And so Jesus said, consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. And if that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, basically it's kind of worthless, right? How much more will he do for you? In other words, God is going to do so much more for you. And those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus, he already has because he has given you his spirit. I love how Jesus concluded this lengthy section. He reminded them, he repeated himself, don't be afraid. And this time he gets even more intimate because no longer are we friends, but he says, little flock, my babies, my children, for your father, not begrudgingly, but he delights 
to give you his spirit, his wisdom, his peace, his joy, his knowledge, his creativity. He delights to give you the kingdom. Consider. And so with that commandment to consider in mind, here's what we're going to do right now. And if you feel comfortable, those of you who are here in person, you can come to the foot of the stage or you can stand up, you can stay seated, however you feel comfortable. But we're going to carve out this time to continue considering. And for some of you right now, just consider the lyrics because they highlight and they reflect our Father, our Provider, our Jaira.
Father, we receive these words and we declare these words. And we pray that these truths will be forever cemented in our hearts and in our minds, that they just wouldn't be words that we heard or that we read, but they crystallize and we live from them. So help us be the people who are not afraid. Trust in you. You have all power, all authority, and you delight to give us your kingdom because we are your friends, we are your little flock. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. Well, God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. We're glad you were a part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, Check the City Tribe YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Instagram, Facebook, or our website, citytribe.church. May you go from this podcast knowing that you are loved.